Hey everyone, John and Andrew here. Welcome to the podcast, everybody. On today's episode, struggling to breathe, exploring consciousness, and a new lease on life. This is Optical Course. Here we go. So John, today we have... Wow, <laughs> what an episode, man. Yeah, it was... My head is still spinning. It was quite a conversation. We brought in Mr. Paul Underhill. He is the the founder of Rumble Shakes. Yeah. It's a, a local company. It's The mission is basically to give you health when when you need it most and it tastes good i mean it's amazing so it's it's basically a healthy drink that doesn't taste grainy that's actually good for you that's organic and uh we had tried them a few years ago actually my wife uh got them on the ferry and uh, they're delicious one of the first few drinks so when when i found out paul was going to be coming on to talk to us today i was just kind of super excited to learn more about the rumble story um but what we discovered along the way is paul's a fascinating man (laughs) He really is. He His yeah. story itself, we talk a lot about the parallels of his own health and challenges with cystic fibrosis, which he was diagnosed at, with as a very young child. And that is part of what motivated him to basically create something that he could drink when he had in, no energy, when he was in his worst condition. And it got him through. It was a, a part of his survival. And then he decided to share this with others, and now it's uh, it was the first drink in Canada to be called a nourishing drink, right? So rather than yeah. an energy drink or you know a, a sugar filled crap drink like most of what <laughs> I think out that's there. what they call them, <laughs> yeah. But yeah, and then of course they went on Dragon's Den and had crazy success there. All five dragons were fighting over their business, and in the end, um, you know Arlene they went with Arlene, but it. Uh, you know, Are did, you a big fan of Dragon's Den? Didn't work out. I love just, Dragon's Den, man. I, I can yeah. tell. Yeah. Because I love uh, it. Yeah. And Shark Tank too. You seem to be really excited by this. I guess. Well, have being you an seen it? I don't. I don't watch a lot of TV. Right. So that's probably why you're not a fan of it. Yeah. But yeah. <laughs> I, I just love. I just love the battle, and I just love the game. But yeah, I mean, they obviously just going on Dragon's Den completely transforms your business, even if you don't get a deal, because mm-hmm. you, you know millions of people watch it, and it, it's quite the show. So that was cool. So so I knew Paul th- through all those channels. But then, as you'll hear in this conversation, I mean, we talked about consciousness and the limits of consciousness and where does consciousness comes from. We talked about Sam Harris and meditation. And, oh, it was awesome. It's a very wide-ranging conversation. And yeah. Paul's own story is fascinating. He had a double lung transplant. If there's one thing that we've got out of today's episode, it is sign up to be an organ donor because yeah. it, it is something that you can do which does not affect you whatsoever. No, it, it takes, takes two minutes. takes two minutes of your time and saves lives and enables people who are otherwise really healthy and can make an amazing contribution in the world and it, it rescues them. And, and people die every day in Canada because not enough people are on the organ donor transplant list. Well, and, and you know, in full disclosure, to, be, to be, be vulnerable, I don't mind admitting, I have not done this yet, honestly. And I was embarrassed as he was talking about it because I have no excuse. Why haven't I done this two-minute long thing? So Why haven't I done it? So you know what, John? By the time this airs, let's both pledge that we, ha- we will have yeah, gone on and will. pledged to become organ donors. 
Yeah, absolutely. There, there's really no excuse. Um, yeah, and it really saves lives. Paul tells a very, you know, emotional story about, about seeing a friend of his who's only 25 who died simply because uh, he couldn't get a new organ in time. And and there's there's no reason. We've got to get over ourselves and just do it. All right. Well, consider it done, John. All right. Let's do it. Enjoy the episode, everyone. Thanks. Since we launched the podcast, you were somebody who was on the list for a guest that we hope to have and a story that really just related well to the message that we were trying to send. So, Paul, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you. I'm really happy to be here and I'm honored. Yeah. So we wanted to just start by talking a little bit about you. You have a, a background in, a, in athletics and, and being physical and pushing yourself and wanted to get your perspective on what it's like when you feel like you've just you've hit a mark you've grinded up to the top of a hill or you've caught a wave or you're just in that flow state hmm. it's a great it's a great question and i think for me that's one of the peak experiences of life that we can revisit again and again depending on our availability and physical abilities but yeah that sort of defines it for me like you you've you've struggled you've challenged you get there and it's that place that there may be thought, but there doesn't have to be. And all you're seeing around you is the is the input from your senses. You're you're just at one with whatever experience you're having. And my first time actually experiencing that, I would say, was tennis, early 20s. I never picked up a racket until I was uh, 22. But I found a buddy of mine, and we were both equally pathetic. <laughs> and um, when we started playing, we learned the rules. When you started playing the game and you got into a good rally, like that's to me was, was flow state right there. Yeah. You're not thinking, you're just watching your body react. And um, to this day, even though I don't play tennis, I look back at those days uh, as being probably the most flow filled <laughs> that I ever had. Cool. Yeah. How does it affect it having been someone who's been afflicted by some serious illnesses and having gone through that and, and being able to still feel that peak performance and, mm. and that high? Yeah, it's a good question because for many years it was completely absent. And it was something that I really, um, not only did I sort of miss it, but there was times when I didn't know that's what I was missing. Mm. And when the struggle becomes, you know, breathing or just like getting through your day, you kind of forget about the luxury of the possibility of reaching for that. You, you know, and then there comes a time when you have that again and it's like the best thing ever. <laughs> um, and like anything in life, you can almost take it for granted and get caught up in the busyness. So I'd say that the way that illness and physical challenges affected me was making you appreciate it all the more when you do have it and um, striving to make changes in your life so that it's uh, it's available. Priorities, like you just, you just make that something that's... Um, a bigger priority than everything else. Question I had was, mm. you know, we know our, our brain, the way it works is, is we get habits and pathways are formed based on our thoughts and our actions. And for, for many, many years, you know, you were struggling with severe illness. Mm. And then, you know, you were at a place where you could experience a flow state now through through these activities. But the brain would still be geared in some ways with those pathways of struggling. So did you ever find that, you know, even when you're in those flow states, you would, you would get mixed messages from your brain? I think when I think back on what you're saying, there was certainly some body built anxiety about sharpness of breath because I had a lung yeah. condition. 
And so when I pursued sports afterwards that were aerobic in nature, at the very first, there would be, um, I'd say, almost anxiety or anticipation, like, oh, I'm going to, any minute now, I'm going to be, like, feeling short of breath, which it was a very bad feeling prior to transplant. And then, um, but it, I'd say it was short-lived because I, the main activity I was doing um, when I regained my health and fitness was cycling. And when you're in a pack, you it's almost as if you think of a flock of birds, like you're, you're working in such close proximity to one another. And there's something that takes over for me anyway, when it would come time to, um, you're working as part of, you're working together, you're drafting off each other, you're taking your turns. And then when it comes time for a sprint, like I did a bit of racing, there's actually no room for thought. It's pure instinct. And that was the beauty. And probably the reason I chose that sport was the ability to forget about the, uh, previous triggers and the body acclimatized fairly quickly to the new situation and um, yeah it was a real a real beautiful thing to experience absolutely yeah. yeah so in the cycling and and in the tennis both team activities are a connection between you and someone else mm -hmm. participating at the same time <clears throat> is that typically something that you look for is is with the athletics the connection the personal mm -hmm. togetherness it's funny you should say that because um, as a kid, when I was really young, like in elementary school, I was always drawn to individual type sports like track and field, cross country running. I did play soccer, but I never really connected too much with it. And so if you look at the sports I'm drawn to now, like kiteboarding, like I said, I want, I want to learn to surf. I wouldn't say I'm a, I'm a surfer yet, um, but they're largely individual. As it relates to like tennis, it's still, it's a lot of that pressure comes on to the like you, it's inside your own head. Mostly it's psychological. It requires, you know, uh, an opponent, of course. And that's something I really do enjoy. I have a social side. And cycling, similarly, like if you, if you listen to professional cyclists, you suddenly realize there's a link. Most of them are antisocial and they don't necessarily have the best skills. Um, and that's part of it is you learn to work together. And it's, it's not requiring a lot of communication. It's for the most part, unless you're on a professional team. If you're just an amateur cyclist going for a weekend road ride, you can, you can casually socialize and meet people. But really, at the end of the day, it's your individual effort on the bike and you don't rely on, um, on anyone else's to do anything else other than block wind really so yeah 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 i'm sure you know we wanted to start with with the flow state because it's it's one of the higher states of, of we can reach in our humanity mm. and and i'm just thinking that there there was probably times in your life when you thought you would never do even many of those activities mm. to that level and so that must be that must amp that up even more when when you're when you spend so many years like, like you say, just struggling to breathe. Such a unique you know, transformation, I would think. It and, is. I, I mean, I was um, blessed with, uh, I don't know if it was naivety or uh, willful ignorance or, um, you know, some sort of defense mechanism, really denial more than anything as a kid. Yeah. But when I was told when I was young about the life expectancy of those with CF and I never believed it, I never took it seriously. I just don't know, I don't know what, I don't know what that was, to be honest. Like I say, sometimes denial is 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 a powerful tool, um, if not mis, misapplied. And so when I was a kid, I actually thought I was going to be an Olympian. Like I, I wanted, I aspired to be an Olympics. I thought it would be track and field. I think I was um, inspired by um, decathletes, actually. 
<laughs> so I mean, you know, so do idea. everything. They do everything. Yeah, it's kind of like do everything and, and be the best at it. Like a, just a crazy little dream I had, um, based on somewhat limited success and you know doing sprints and in track and field as a kid, which doesn't require great aerobic strength. It's mostly anaerobic, of course. Um, but that said, I was luckier than most kids with CF in that I did have a natural fitness and I came from an athletic family mm. with uh, grandparents on both sides that were um, uh, really amazing amateur athletes. And even like my grandmother um, was a Canadian champion, badminton player, and, and that's how she met my grandfather on that my dad's side so wow was yeah. he a badminton player as well he was yeah there's a little little blurb about them called the underhill story about how these two came together she was actually significantly um better than him and he was recently inducted into the bc badminton hall of fame i had to go get an award for him and i sort of chided them I'm like you know my grandmother was better and you guys have it on <laughs> <laughs> and then my other grandfather on the my mom's side is a um was a golfer who had the, the he was an amateur golfer and doctor, of course, and he had uh, the course record at the Victoria Golf Club for years. Wow. Um, so I mean, not that that means anything, but, but I just meant that I was lucky enough to be born with no, athletic sure. genes, and yeah. I think that influenced the course of the illness. Um, and certainly my parents never discouraged me from activity, quite the contrary. So although CF differs greatly, and there's all kinds of modifier genes that can affect your potential, um, I was really blessed with a relatively active childhood. So it wasn't until my 20s um, that I was really limited, and particularly in my 30s. So, you know, I can relate to more of your question as to coming out of that, because it was really unclear in my late 30s if I was ever going to be able to do any kind of riding or aerobic activity ever again. Um, whereas as a kid, I dreamed big. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, okay. and how much of an impact do you think that made that you were pushing hard to be physical and, and use your body. Whereas some parents and some children might be afraid of what might happen if, if you push someone with cystic fibrosis hmm. and, and you went the other way Yeah, and it's, it allowed you to uh, be healthier than someone else may have. Yeah. And no, that's a great question because it wasn't just genetics. It was certainly, and it's only, you know, years later when you start to reflect on it, how, um, how brilliant my parents were, intentional or not. And I think now it was more intentional than I realized in, in that I was encouraged to play soccer. I was told to get outside and play outside and do all those things. And I think in, on the inside, my mom was actually worried, but she had a feeling that it would probably be better for me. And at the same time, some kids I know, and I've, I've lost, I've had friends, I've lost over 30 friends to CF over the years. Wow. And some of them, their parents were like, no, 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 you shouldn't. They'd write their notes to excuse them from PE and say this person has fragile lungs. And, and I saw firsthand that that really impacted them. Um, so these days, it's, it's more widely recognized that physical, physical activity really helps people see CF. That wasn't the case um, in the late 70s and 80s, you know, growing up when I did. And um, yeah, so I feel really blessed that my parents did push me. It, it really, they didn't even push me. They just, just you know, gently encouraged me. And uh, luckily I had that instinct or the ADD or whatever it was that made me go outside and play. Well, and we talk a lot about the modes we can get into and it's easy to get into a victim mode, mm. right? And, and parents can create victims, you know. Unintentionally. Unintentionally yeah. often, right? Because yeah. they, they love their children so much. Their heart breaks for their children, so they're trying to protect them as good parents would. Yeah. But then we we now know it ends up creating a situation where, the the child isn't able to you know become a fully realized adult absolutely and that's something that um like i said only 
upon reflection, looking back at my childhood, I realized that um, my parents knew what they were doing. And, um, yeah. I, and, my, and my brother and sister, too. They they also, you know, I got, they would say I was, you know, treated specially because I didn't have to eat porridge if I did like they did. And I got <laughs> to eat shreddies. But, like, from my point of view, even though I was the youngest kid, um, parents were pretty pretty tough in, in, in many respects. And it wasn't like there was any uh, slack given to me. I think I had fewer sick days in elementary than either my brother or my sister. Wow. So it wow. wasn't like I could, you know, no. try to fake every now and then. They're like, oh, I don't think so. You're going to school today, kiddo. <laughs> did, did you feel any of the of the challenges or, or of your, of CF, you know, before you turned 20? Like you yeah. knew you knew you had the disease, but what did yeah. it feel like? Well, I would say psychologically, it was it was the much, much bigger challenge because, okay. um, and we, we learn this as adults, but like as a kid, you don't know that other kids feel the same way. And whatever it is that makes you different as a kid is, is like the biggest deal. Mm-hmm. So for me, the fact that I had this illness, I was like, I was uh, so shameful. Like I just I didn't want anybody to know. And to some extent, I think the efforts I made to join the track team and cross country were exactly to disguise the fact that I had this thing. So people would say like, why are you coughing? I coughed a lot as a kid and I, I had a lot of chest colds, which is, which is typical of CF. And I'd be like, I just would just deny it. I remember um, <laughs> with my first serious girlfriend at age 16, I take you know, pancreatic enzyme pills with each meal as a part of the pancreatic insufficiency, which accompanies cystic fibrosis. And the, um, I remember her saying after about a month, like, you know, I, I sort of surreptitiously or so I thought, take these, uh, these pills after eating. She's like, oh, like, you know, what are those? And I'm like, what? Nothing? Like, I didn't, no, I don't, what? No, no, that was, a, that was a vitamin or something. She, and then after a while, she'd always known because she had a friend who told her years earlier or months earlier, whatever it was. And she's like, you know, I know what those are. And I'm like, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> just like, you know, like yeah. beat red and like just really not wanting anyone to know that there was anything mm-hmm. different about me. Um, so that that affected me certainly psychologically. And then physically, I'd say it's, it's just like having chronic repeated chest colds that, that won't quite go away. Okay. That's mostly what it felt like from about age 16 to early 20s. And then it would become more of a fatigue and um, a greater challenge every year as it progressed. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So you you mentioned the the denial as a tool, which is another thing that we spoke about in a a, a recent podcast mm. uh, with Heather, and she used the phrase that it's uh, it's a great crutch until you have something to replace it. <laughs> and so I'm curious what when you decided it was time to stop denying that mm. there was some serious concerns mm-hmm. and you needed to talk about it, mm-hmm. what took its place? Um, I would say another thing that we generally frown frown on, uh, which is ego. So as soon as I was to the point where I had to admit that I was in some ways limited by the disease, then it became, okay, well, if the general rule of thumb for people with CF is this storyline or this kind of decline, I'm going to be the one guy that shows that's not me. Um, I'm going to go out there and I'm going to succeed and I'm going to, um, I'm going to prove them wrong. So it's kind of like, uh, I don't know, back to the future, like, don't call me, don't say I'm limited. Yeah, I'll yeah. show you. So then ego, which is, like I say, it's not something that we generally uh, applaud or, or want to have, became became a tool that replaced denial in that, you know, I was able to try to differentiate myself in that respect. Like, I mean, maybe I'm different from everyone else that doesn't have CF, but among those of CF, 
just watch, you know, let's see what I can do here. And I think both with an idea of um, it's maybe laced with denial because I was, I was starting to lose people that I really loved to the disease. And I had to convince myself that I was different in order to not have to deal with uh, the fundamental fear or the fear of death. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hmm. What did that survival mechanism of, of the ego and, and making yourself different, what were some of the effects of that positive or negative? Um, well, it's certainly isolating. If you tell yourself that you're different from your, all your peers of CF, then I, one thing I noticed was I, when I look back on it, having lost some friends when I was in my early teens, um, I wasn't going to their funerals. I was like, hmm, you know, somehow it was, there was always conflict or I was busy. And I think you suppress things. You, you don't look at it or acknowledge it. You pay the price in that at some point those things are going to come back to bite you. Um, you know, even my grandmother's somehow I wasn't even at my own grandmother's funeral. And I, to this day, don't know why or where I was, but I think that fear of death got pushed so deeply down, um, that it, you know, probably compromised some relationships where if I sensed somebody was getting really sick, maybe I was backing off in ways that I wasn't able to recognize at the time. So certainly that's one of the price, um, one of the prices I paid. Mm. In in terms of the positive ones, mm. I mean, I, I know that uh, you went to UVic and, and studied, you were in sciences and I think... Uh, yeah, I did my undergrad. I did, um, my wife got a Bachelor of Science in Psychology and I got a Bachelor of Arts in Psychology. We met in honors, um, but I actually went on and did law school at UVic. Um, so yeah, I think, you know, not trying to use CF as an impediment or, you know, try to overlook that, maybe give me a little more fuel for the fire and a desire to, yeah, to move past that and... Um, but yeah, when it comes to being like, I, I specifically chose not to go into a career in law, even though I had um, legal training specifically because I knew the impact it could have on my health. So, I mean, yeah, in terms of you were asking about the positive impacts of the ego or having having to define myself as being different, um, I'd say the positive on that was simply that it inspired me to, to do a lot more physically that in turn did help me maintain my health a lot longer. Uh, so to live until I was in my 40s to get transplant was... A major accomplishment for somebody with my um, type of cystic fibrosis, and by that I mean there's different. Um, I think there's over 1,800 types of CF genetically, and I have the most common variant, which is the Delta 508 times two, basically two genes for the same kind of CF, which is about 70% of people with CF have that. And although there's all kinds of modifying um, genes and factors, that tends to be a pretty poor prognosis when you're um, as young as I was, which was six months old when I was diagnosed. Um, nowadays, people are being diagnosed as adults, and sometimes they're with a, a variant that's a lot milder. So hmm. anyway, getting back to that ego thing, I think it did serve to help uh, in that um, wanting to be different, wanting to be fit was, uh, was a motivator, and that allowed me to maintain a greater degree of health. And then you chose to to really study. I mean, clearly you're you're quite knowledgeable in uh, about the disease, and I get the impression that you you chose to really learn as much about it as you possibly could, so you could figure out ways to help yourself and to maintain that level of of fitness and just do everything that was within your control. Yeah, that's a good uh, good point, Andrew. I think um, when I think of why I went into law school and what I ended up doing coming out of it. I've, always thought of myself more or less as a professional researcher because even you know something we all learn in in school is how to how to research it's basic part of any schooling but i really applied that to cf to learn everything about health 
healing, nutrition, exercise, um, you know, meditation, you name it. It was all focused on what can I possibly do to help um, overcome these challenges. And that actually, we can talk about that later, but that actually led to realizing heck, it's not just me that can benefit from some of this that I'm reading about. And the gap between sort of common sense and the way that we normally are encouraged to live versus what research tells us is optimal to me it was was crazy that was like most of the time before podcasts and and this kind of information was really available so it was like huh and that sense of in when the truth isn't known there's something that, that a word that really i'm centered around my whole life is about truth and at the same time opposed to uh, you know misinformation so that's another that's a factor that led me down that line of really finding out what i could do to dig deep and um, gain advantage Hmm. Paul, you mentioned the fear of death. Mm. And I think, you know, that's obviously a universal human fear, probably our biggest fear. Mm -hmm. And and for you, for, for, for you know, a, a young child who, who is told that he has a condition and here's the life expectancy, mm -hmm. it, it seems to me that there could be a couple different reactions from that. I'm wondering, you know, if you feel that the fear of death mm -hmm. kind of helped inspire you to continue pushing and continue mm. um, challenging yourself hmm i don't think it was it certainly wasn't a conscious uh fear of death i think it's only it's it's funny like i i think it's only the last couple of years i've, I've been to quite a few like week-long or 10-day silent retreats where you have a chance for introspection and you can examine the narrative you have about yourself whether it's you know quote positive or or negative and i've had a, a lot of positive narratives about myself that aren't necessarily true and one of those narratives was i would have said oh i had no fear of death like i wasn't if i did i wasn't aware of it and certainly my friends can tell you from from the way i've lived it's it's always um i'm not really much concerned with risk and um i tend to like to do things that are pretty exciting the way <laughs> the way i mountain bike or the way i kiteboard Maybe sometimes be considered reckless by some, but you know it was all or, or snowboard or whatever, whatever it is. Um, so I don't know that the fear of death consciously affected me, but I, I would suggest looking back on it with a critical eye. With I would suggest it's probably underlying um, part of uh, of why I lived the way I did. Is like you know just in case you know I don't, i'm not gonna die right i'm gonna, I'm gonna die when i'm 100 years old but just in case mm. I, we, we, we better all live as fully as, as possible and i would apply that to anyone i know who was in good health too because like where is this presumption that you're gonna live to be old age and die in your sleep in an old age home <laughs> like yeah. it just seemed ridiculous to me given the evidence to the contrary um i do have friends and i don't if there's no judgment here but i do have friends that lived exactly as you described with cf they're like they would hear something, um, even if they were like 10, 11, or 12 when they're diagnosed, and, and they were told, okay, life expectancy is 18. Well, that applies to people that are mostly diagnosed before age one. And if you're being diagnosed at age 10, 11, or 12, or 14, like, of course, you're going to live to be a lot older on average. But some people just heard that number and panicked and freaked out. And, and, and you know, no, no judgment. It's just we're, all, we're born into certain bodies with certain conditioning from our parents. And for whatever reason, that was absent. I either didn't hear it or I pushed it down so deep that I wasn't aware of it. And um, I think most of my ambition came from whatever it is that gives any one of us a personality. Um, and I'm not a parent, but many parents tell me that they seem like their kids are just born that way. So who's to say? <laughs> but do you, do you, have you had moments where you were 
sort of in full blown panic mode or, or, or the fear kind of overtook you? Yeah, I can, I can describe a couple of those moments and, uh, the, I can honestly say they're the worst moments of my life. Um, and this is coming from a guy who like, I would hear about people who have general anxiety, very common in our society. I have friends that, that suffer from that and I can see why we can talk later about, you know, I'm sure you know more <laughs> this as well as I do, all the reasons we can have to be anxious. But what I didn't know until uh, I had very advanced lung disease was that there's a biological um, trigger. So I can, I can feel like completely at ease and I've learned all techniques for calm breathing and it's all good. And then um, I think one of the first times I experienced it, I was working out. I had a little, little gym in my basement and I was doing squats and uh, my wife was upstairs talking with a friend of ours and I finished a set. And at the time, um, it was just before I was on oxygen, like 24 seven. So I'd been on occasional oxygen and I finished this set of squats. And what happens is your body sort of goes into, into deprivation as you finish. So you feel okay. And you're using up all the ATP and oxygen that's already in your bloodstream. And then, and then your body goes like, Whoa, we're seriously low. And so there's this physical feeling, um, that triggers panic, essentially a panic attack. And of course the best thing would be just to lie down and rest. And maybe you have to hyperventilate, but instead, I was so sure I was about to die. The feeling of the certainty of death over overcame me, and it was like, oh my god, I don't want to die by myself in the basement when my wife's upstairs. So I sprinted up the stairs. Hmm. You know, even yeah. though I'm already almost blacking out, I sprinted up the stairs and then fell over at my wife's feet, who was like very perplexed as to what was happening. And a few minutes later, sort of came around and was alert again. But that feeling of utter panic and it was it's just so so terrifying and, and I now understand that some of my friends who don't have any physical illness whatsoever can feel a similar level of intensity with a panic attack um, so I've got great compassion now for those that suffer um, with acute anxiety um, another time that happened was um, I was uh, swimming in um, a very gentle calm summer day in a wetsuit because I used, used to be, get cold easily when I was uh, when I was ill and I was just gently making my way to a wharf, which was still 100 meters away. And I reached that point where my body, the oxygen had just depleted. And there was that similar to the feeling I just described. And that was like, oh, I'm about to drown and I need help. And I didn't have the breath to call for help. And I, I tried, I tried to get it out. And I said like, help. And I don't know, my brother was on the beach and he might have heard me. And But I realized there was no way anybody could get to me before I felt that I was definitely going to drown and something in my body took over and, and much it, it goes against common sense this increased the chance of drowning but i started paddling quickly when i'd been going really slowly and still <laughs> reached that point of oxygen deprivation i started paddling quickly to the wharf and uh it was on pure fumes of adrenaline and cortisol and somehow popped out onto that wharf and the only thought in my head was like i still might die but if i live i never going in the water again like it just seemed preposterously stupid that i'd ever even gotten in the water in the first place and of course like you know i think it was like a month later i was, I was still trying to kiteboard or something, but, <laughs> that was but my next yeah, question <laughs> yeah no it does like the panic takes over and i'm very now familiar with that and i had to learn techniques um by the hospital social worker on how to quell anxiety and, and those were very useful techniques that i um i keep with me to this day i know a lot of people and, and i've experienced it myself it's, it's amazing how you can actually believe 
you know, I, I might die here. That's mm-hmm. a panic attack is that sense of dread, you know, mm-hmm. where you believe. And it's just, it shows how powerful the, the mind is. It and, does, and, yeah. And yeah. Uh, so, so it's, yeah, it's interesting. Mm-hmm. That mind-body connection, which yeah. we've been dancing around that topic the whole mm-hmm. time. Yeah. But just the, the power of what happens if your mind gets overcome with fear yeah. and the physical effect that it takes. And then, yeah, learning mm-hmm. methods of, of harnessing that and, and taking control is really powerful and, and can help us all through those those challenges. Well, what a story about swimming 100 meters from yeah. the dock with, with your body basically trying to shut down. Yeah, it's funny. Like I look sometimes you think, well, what, what, like I've done these things where I've ridden for charity from Vancouver to, to Banff or Calgary, depending on the on the year. I've done what I would consider to be quite challenging things. But I look back at that. To me, that's like the miracle of the body right there is like these small things that, that to me at the time defied description or explanation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So we talked earlier a little bit about the parallels between your own health deteriorating mm-hmm. and creating the company and the brand that, mm. that you eventually created. So mm-hmm. when did those parallels begin? Well, yeah, so the, the, the stories are closely tied in, in that um, at first the decline in health, you know, was linked, I'd say, with the creation and the starting of the company. So there's many ways in which this is true and, and the company or business aspect is, is probably the the least um, critical one to me. But what I'm, what I'm getting at is I'm really grateful for the fact that I have had CF and I've learned and continue to learn lessons that I do because of that. Um, but one of the things I'm grateful for, of course, is the it, it was directly linked with the creation of the company and the brand and, and something I like to think to this day is helping people. But the reason that came about was... Um, you know, and not everyone knows this, but I wasn't because they assume now I'm with Rumble, I'm Mr. Like health guru, health conscious guy. But actually, I, I was really addicted to junk food for most of my life. Like, um, I love fast food. I'm really lazy and not much of a cook. Uh, addicted to candy as a kid. That was my you know emotional feel good you know comfort stuff. And uh, my breakfast sandwiches at McDonald's. Oh, <laughs> I did hear. I did hear your <laughs> podcast. That's why I brought you something. Thank Hopefully, you. we'll prevent that. You're looking again. out for me. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> no, but I ate yeah, McDonald's. I mean, I, the truth is, I, I ate all kinds of crap. But even worse, I would do uh, my my go to as a kid. Like every day, the only reason I got a job and I was like ten or eleven delivering the you know the daily, or sorry, the weekly like. Yeah. Oak Bay Star was with Victoria, right. you know, was to get candy, and it was like every day I would get thirty of these uh, marshmallow bananas. Had, oh yeah, you know, like, and it was like those like things with texture, like yeah. candy. It was the worst. Uh, so you must have loved Halloween. Oh, Halloween was like was like yeah. better than any birthday or Christmas. <laughs> yeah. You know, it was like it was what I lived for as a kid. So. So to go from being that kid who ate candy to the young adult who ate junk food and, um, you know, corn dogs at 7-Eleven after the bars closed, like it was just a series of bad nutritional choices um, that plagued me up and to and through university. Just, just ask my wife if you don't believe me. And I used to work yeah. the midnight shift at 7-Eleven. I know how long those corn dogs were there, man. Oh, I can't believe you did that. And the, and the truth of the matter is, and this is, this is, this is like, talk about a shameful public admission. Uh, like, yeah. The older they were, the better they were for me because I like texture. So I would ask, I'd say to the 7-Eleven, like, you know, like, which of these is here the longest? And that was what I would select. Oh, wow. like, they've all been here for three days, exactly. man. Yeah. <laughs> so... 
<laughs> so that sounds like, whoa, how do we get from there to someone who, quite honestly, and I'm not lying, today's my breakfast was was uh, a whole whack load of kale, fresh steamed kale with yeah. uh, olive oil and grass-fed butter on top of it with wow. a little bit of like turmeric, coconut oil, rice. And so I, I you know, completely different. Like, how did this happen? And it happened, I think the way it does for many of us is we start getting older and we notice this crazy link between um, what we're eating and how we feel. And um, I was a slow learner. So, but what I did learn and what showed up directly was how much worse my cough would get. Um, The energy drain is probably one of the bigger aspects of CF that no one talks about because anyone can hear you coughing, but no one really knows just how drained you are. And for me, I started having to see, you know, alternative health and um, practitioners and naturopath was one of the ones I credit with helping save my life. And we, we, she encouraged me to examine what are you eating and how do you feel afterwards? And what I realized is some, some things I thought were just CF were actually the food. I'd have a bunch of cereal an hour and a half later, I'd have to go lie down. I thought it was like almost CF my lungs or that time of the day, but no, it was really just a reaction to corn dogs. Well, (laughs) it was was cereal. Corn pops. Exactly. (laughs) Golden grams. Uh, Even the healthier cereals, like healthier, like by the time I thought shreddies were healthier than golden grams or whatever. So, but I was actually having a reaction to the wheat and I'm not gluten intolerant, but I, whether it's glyphosate that's being used as a desiccant in crops or whatever, whatever it was, I was having a real problem. So I learned about the, you know, the, the macronutrient ratios were helpful, meaning like, are you having enough protein and fat along with your carbs? You know, is there fiber? Like these are, and what is the source of the protein? What is the source of the, of the fat? These things I started experimenting with and discovered, wow, I feel a heck of a lot better when I make a morning shake that combines these things in a, you know, roughly uh, proportional balance. And um, so when I started, when I finally nailed a, a recipe that I really liked for myself, I was also time pressed. You know, I was, um, for a while there, I was working for government, and when I was in law school, it was like, it was, it, you didn't have a lot of time. Even coming out of that, uh, when you're sick, you don't have a lot of energy. So when you're when you're really challenged by time and energy, sometimes- It's hard to eat healthy. It's hard to eat healthy, like you, yeah. you had the other day when you, when you had to leave early, and, and uh, Absolutely. So, yeah. so I was like, okay, I can make my own shake, but it's taken me a while. I'd like to have, for those situations when I'm in a rush, because it's always better to make your own when you can, but when you're in a rush, I'm like, I just want to get something that's ready to drink. And my wife was selling um, Vega. Sorry, she was, she was selling... Uh, that, was, that was a dramatic drum there. Exactly. <laughs> she, was, she was selling um, the original uh, Sequel Naturals Vega powder, which was a plant-based protein oh, okay. uh, and meal replacement powder, which yeah. used to taste um, really rough in the first days. They've been refined and they, they got bought out by a bigger company and then a bigger company and oh. they did really well for themselves. But in the early days, that was what I was using. And, and my naturopath was like, well, how is that working for you? I'm like, well, actually, I was getting bloated and a lot of GI distress. And it said right on the side of the package like a lot of these things are difficult to digest it may take you three weeks to adapt to it and she's like she's like you know dude <laughs> there's a reason those things are hard to digest you want to go with something that's easy for you and that's where she recommended um the way and so i went up and bought way and, and just go oh this is way if you want no pun intended way better for me <laughs> um and so that combined with the you know organic flaxseed oil was something when i was making my home homemade shake and so i was but i'm a lazy guy like to be honest i'm just like i need i don't have a lot of time so i went and what can I find? And I went to the grocery stores and I'm like, what can I find that's all natural and nutritionally balanced and doesn't taste horrible? Right. Well, I couldn't even get the first two. I was like, I was getting boosted and sure from the pharmacy as part of the um, recommendations from the doctors and the nutritionist at CF clinic. But I was like, uh, it's full of artificial ingredients yeah. and corn syrup. And so yeah. I was like, 
all right, well, what's out there that's like, you know, moderately healthy and nutritionally balanced? And there was, there was literally at the time nothing. And I'm talking in North America. Like I did a trip from the Victoria down to the tip of the Baja Peninsula in Mexico. And that entire trip all the way through the States, you'd walk into these gas stations with floor to ceiling windows of like everything. And like the closest that you had to being balanced because it was all like juices and pops and sodas. And it's either zero calories or it's like, um, you know, the pure protein was one at the time. It was like, you know, 30 grams of protein, but no carbs or, or yeah. it's like, what's going on? So the closest thing was muscle milk, which at the time was all artificial and uh, didn't taste very good and overly sweet and high mm. high in sugars or or a supposedly healthy um, smoothie type beverage, which had 46, like had more sugar than a can of Coke, um, but it would have no protein and no healthy fats. Mm. And so that was the impetus for, well, I can make this. How hard can this be? And once again, that... Um, Naivety, denial, um, probably just more <laughs> being naive about how hard it really would be, led me to make my own and, and try this experiment to see if I could, um, with friends and with supporters, start a company to get the product to market. That was sort of the origin of what became Rumble. Love it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's a great story. And, and being inspired to have an impact on others that, that have dealt with similar struggles it's a big part of it and, mm. and there's a lot of value in that well and that's the heart of every entrepreneur right yeah so yes. some of the best businesses are i need this this yeah. will make my life better it doesn't exist so yeah. now i need to invent it i mean it, those are the best products that, that that's true and it's certainly funny when i look at it because in law school there's a course called business associations where you learn about the laws behind the creation and running the businesses and i Everybody I know took it. I'm the only person I know that didn't take it. In most law schools, it's mandatory. UVic at the time, it was optional. And I just knew I had no interest in business. So that was an easy one to avoid. Didn't take that. Mm. Um, I would say, I, I, I don't know why, but I was really put off by the idea of, um, of business and entrepreneurship at the time. I think because of being, it was just mischaracterized. You know, like it was just not something that was ever, I didn't have any mentors. I didn't know people. Now I know so many people that are, entrepreneurs that are literally in and of themselves a force for good and having been introduced to how businesses can be a force for good i have such respect for entrepreneurs and, and, and businesses that are making you know changes in the world and i think you know in the early days it was like companies like cliff bar um and patagonia but there's been so many more now with tom shoes so many more companies that come up that you realize but for that company um there'd be more suffering and so that certainly helped change the tide for me and then when i saw that Never mind my own needs. That there are so many other people that could benefit from it. It was like, oh wow, this is a how exciting, and that just like fills you. As you, as you guys both know, being involved in like leadership and business training, like it's like when you get people lit up with the potential for for helping other people. That's where true motivation and change comes yeah, from. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Our our friend Jason Dorland just spoke about that at a, at a conference we were at last week. About that is the deepest source of motivation mm. is making an impact yes. on on the greater community mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. i'm curious one little point in you're talking about different energy and, and supplements and you, you spoke about balance mm. in in each of those and the importance of that and we're, we're certainly not like a health and nutrition podcast because we don't know that much about mm -hmm. it um mental health maybe mm -hmm. but how important is it for for a meal or uh, a meal replacement or, or anything to have that balance to not just be like carb loading or, mm. or protein heavy. Like right. you, you promote 20 grams of 
of grass-fed protein, which mm-hmm. is great, but does there need to be a, a good helping of carbs for your body to digest, or how does mm-hmm. that all play together? It's a great question, and I, I would say the or, like it goes back more to the origin of what we were trying to do, what I was trying to do for myself, and what um, we were trying to do as a company. So prior to the creation of Rumble, um, what there was in the market was a lot of, like I say, those sort of smoothie type things that people at the time thought were healthy. And I think there's been a lot of research done on um, the challenges of a high carbohydrate diet and, and of the, what it does to your body when you take a lot of simple sugars in quickly. Now, it, that includes fruit smoothies that um, maybe it's not like eating fruit where you have the fiber present and it takes longer to digest. So so when you're having, uh, just you know to recap that, when you have a real sudden infusion of um, 30 or 40 grams of, of sugars, whether that be from a can of Coke, which is quite, it's all context, right? That's quite helpful at the end of a three or four hour um, bike race. To this day, professional cyclists will have flat Coke in their water bottles as something to give them fuel. But for most people, we haven't um, done a marathon or you know, ridden 100K yet in the day. You probably don't want to have unopposed carbohydrate. And for me, looking back at the marketplace, there was these not just bad tasting and badly formulated meal replacements, um, there was the associations. When you thought of um, these companies, you thought of, uh, and not to be ageist, but you thought of old people or sick people or infirm people and uh, maybe the smell of hospitals or whatever. It was just like not not a sexy product idea. So, so t- but at the same time, you had companies like Red Bull come along and show you that you could make a product cool and people would pay you know, four times the cost just because of the associations that it had to do with a particular form of lifestyle. So our idea was, well, what if you combined premium and maybe the best in class nutrition and combine that with um, something that was lifestyle focused? Great. But get, and that's a little bit off, off track. But getting back to your question about why balance and why not just one thing, it was more centered around people that are missing the opportunity to have a meal than it was specifically for athletes or even for sick people or anything else. It was more like, you're looking for something quick on the go, and because we don't we don't know what people have had, it certainly is um, helpful to have protein and fat and fiber when you have carbs to slow the absorption. I myself have a type of diabetes that's associated with CF that um, makes it necessary to to avoid having a sudden influx of, of carbs without those things. But it turns out we all benefit when you have um, the slow absorption of, of carbohydrate. So that's where you want to have. Um, these other nutrients, macronutrients, protein, of course, is one of them, but you don't want to overload on protein. That can be tough on the kidneys and there's no need to have more than we need. It's also tough on the planet if you're if you're consuming protein as a main source. So we want to be kind to the planet to not have too much, but you want some. And then fats, we're learning more and more every day about not even just keto, but just, just how fats might, there's an argument to be made that might form 50% of a caloric uh, intake could be healthy fats. And that wouldn't necessarily be a, a bad proportion. So you want to have that. And of course, fiber. We need fiber for the for the probiotics in our in our, you know, our GI tract. And um, the idea of putting all those together is very challenging from a technical standpoint, and um, and somewhat costly compared to making, you know, a soda or a juice or a, even a, a kombucha or something. But um, that was the business experiment was can you combine all these things make it taste good will people want to buy it and will they consume it on a repeated basis yeah that's all in there awesome <laughs> yeah i think one of the biggest challenges that, I, that i'm guessing you had early on in your business was the whole idea of making something healthy but also delicious 
Yeah, route. And, yeah. And you've spoken to that. You know, you tried all the alternatives. Yeah. And it's like, well, you know, I, I can feel good about this being great for me. Yeah. But, you know, I, I have to like quickly drink water after. Right? Yeah. That's and, and so to yeah. try and, what, you know, what kind of obstacles did you face getting it to be both nutritious and delicious? Right. Because well, that, yeah. that's a com- powerful combination. It, it is. And, and not to sound like some sort of product infomercial here, but sort of to go back and, and give context to that. One of the first obstacles was when you're sick and low energy and you recognize you, you need expertise that you don't single-handedly have is like, how do I get a team together to bring this to market? Because it's, it's um, maybe one person could do that initially if they had perfect health. I wasn't in that position. So, and neither did I have the financial capacity to to start a business. So the first thing was finding somebody who um, shared that vision and belief. And I shopped it around to a fair number of people, put it out there. In fact, I, I was like willing to give the idea away as long as it could be done by somebody who I felt was confident. Like it, I didn't necessarily need to be involved. Couldn't find anybody to take up that baton. And that's when I realized, oh, I guess this is one of those things where, you know, the universe is, is speaking through you. It wants you to be the, be the you know, I'm like, okay, so I guess I'll take this up. And I, I found um, uh, a friend, Steve, who, who had I'd mentioned the business to him. He was interested, but he wanted to taste my homemade creations <laughs> first. And so I had three different recipes that I made up and we'd had a little meeting for coffee. And he's like, sounds good in theory. You know, I could use this. My kids could use this, but let's see what it tastes like. And I'd worked in my recipes for six months in the kitchen and he, uh, he tasted, he's like, Okay, this is a go. I like this. I like this idea. Let's see what we can do. So finding that, first of all, was finding that obstacle was finding the person or persons to whom you can have trust in that have that uh, knowledge. Um, and we were together for, I think, four or five months before we realized we were going to need more than just the two of us. And thankfully, Dr. Kim McQueen, a local naturopath who is a friend of my wife and worked with her at a clinic in town, um, you know, she listened and thought that it had a lot of potential. And she had a few suggestions on how to improve the um, the recipe, including doubling the uh, omega three content, which was really, I think, critical to our early success. Um, so that, but that was all before we had a product in in the market. And so we had these three people working together on that initial formula, and it still it, it took so long because the challenge you mentioned, John, is like how do you make something taste good and have those things? So we worked for months with a. Um, a food scientist in Vancouver. And then our fourth teammate came on board, uh, James McQueen. And we, we sort of pitched it as like, we need some help with finances and getting money together. But instead it turned out that Steve and Kim and I were all part-time because we all had other obligations. And poor James became like the, uh, the guy carrying the football for everything, not just the money. So here he was trying to raise money and he's also like guiding the food scientist and, <laughs> and acting as the, um, as the quarterback really. So that team was really the one I want to give credit where credit is due. That team is what created Rumble in the early days. And of course we did Dragon's Den, which, which got us um, in an indirect way, got us our financing and so forth. So getting back to the question, how do you do it? Well, uh, that whole denial, like thinking, Oh no, like, or just the, the naivety of going, we're going to do this and it's going to work. Um, that kind of attitude was helpful. We all had that attitude. Well, it's it's almost yeah. ignorance, right? Ignorance, like plain, like, plain old ignorance. Like yeah. all of us around <laughs> this table have started businesses. And and I think back to, you yeah. know, when I started Lush in the early years, 10 years ago, I would have known everything it was going to take. Oh. You know, <laughs> would I do it again? I'd like to say yes. Yeah. You know, but it yeah. would have been, you know, a hell of a lot harder. Yeah. Every single guest we've had, we, they've said the same thing. They yeah, said if they had known yeah. going in, you know, it might have changed some things, but just that ignorance, ignorance right? Yeah. Uh, and combined with idealism, combined yeah. with ego, combined all with all those. these things we're talking about, right? Yeah. Well, I can do it, you know? Yeah. 
Um, which is really funny because so, it's, it's never maybe it's really essential. Asked. Maybe yeah. ignorance yeah. is essential. <laughs> I, don't know. I think so. It is, it is the one essential ingredient is, is yeah. ignorance. And in, in that way, it's kind of um, beautiful. It's, it's what it kids is, have yeah. when they say like, I'm going to be, you know, right. I'm going to share when I grew up. And it's like, yeah, go yeah. for it. I mean, and sometimes they're right. <laughs> you know? But right. yeah. and even yeah. if they're wrong yeah. or we're wrong, yeah. it, we still learn something oh, along the way. So much. For sure. Yeah. Just, yeah. It's, it's that understanding that it might be scary but i'm going to do it anyways yeah it's mm-hmm. being okay with going outside the comfort zone mm-hmm. and even if you don't become prime minister mm-hmm. you you're still probably you've got some good skills oh, yeah. in your pocket and and you have a story to tell yeah totally there's, there's no to me it just seemed um there's never any choice like i don't know that's something for a different topic a different day about about you know the extent to which we have free will and choice and i'm um yeah i know we've both done the uh sam harris uh, yeah waking up at but anyway that's 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 really interesting stuff but what it felt like to me personally in the first person is like i don't have a choice like i have to do this and odds are ridiculous because um if we all looked at the odds and like i think it was something like 98 percent of beverage companies are gone within the first three years yeah um and it's like well, why do anything you know if you look yeah. at like the yeah. odds of things like it just it's just ridiculous we, we apply the characteristics of a population to individuals which is the main mistake people make in my view when they're diagnosed with an illness and they're like oh shoot like you know if i have a 90 percent odds of being dead by 20 um why do anything well, and it's was like, hold on, that's a population. That's nothing to do with the individual. Like, and so the same is true with any business endeavor. Um, you know, we, we have to look at what are what do we feel compelled to do, and realize that ultimately it's kind of like having you being prodded from behind. You have to step out and and jump off the diving board, and and you don't really have that choice. So, <laughs> well, and you've mentioned meditation yes, a number yeah. of times, and mm-hmm. perhaps this is a good good point to to talk about it. Mm. How has meditation aided your mindset and and your perspective to be able to do the things that you've done mm. and overcome the challenges you you've you've had to overcome? Yeah, I would suggest um, it's been like critical, like essential. Um, I just I look at it and I can't even imagine how unproductive I would be because of jumping from thing to thing. I tend to have a kind of an ADD style to, to living. It wasn't a common diagnosis when I was in elementary school. It was just on the cusp. And certainly I was the kid who was always getting up and, you know, doing my pencil and the pencil sharpener. And um, as an adult, it manifested as being um, a procrastinator to the nth degree, pulling all-nighters in university. And when I started meditating, I saw a transformation in um, the ability just to to be more productive, which is sort of, I think, the pitch that we're all sold. Oh, I can be more productive in meditation. Mm-hmm. And then it goes deeper. Meditation for me became something, and I've now done, I think, over 10-week or 10-day-long retreats. So I've done Vipassana, and I've done what we might call Advaita Vedanta or non-dual retreats. And and the meditation style has changed and it's been it's been one that instead of being about productivity and about how effective and efficient I can be, it's been about touching into the true nature which defines all of us and what animates all of us and mm-hmm. putting in us in direct contact with that. And that to me is where true healing comes from. It's where the ironically the best business ideas have come out of the deepest meditations. I've actually got a like a little storage vault of like what I consider to be you know, almost like uh, they're not my ideas, they're ideas that come through me. The same way that some people like get scientific discoveries that have sort of like gifted them in dreams. I've had business ideas. I'm like, holy cow, I've recognized myself as a serial entrepreneur. If it wasn't Rumble, I know I would be doing another business. 
and this, and I was a really reluctant entrepreneur in the first place. So it's, right. it's really funny. So meditation has been that which anchors me. It's how I start each day. Um, I do 20 minutes every morning and then I do the, um, I've experimented with uh, different apps and techniques in the evenings. So hmm. yeah, most so, recently that Sam Harris one that when you mentioned it on in your one of your previous episodes. Yeah, what I like about Sam's is he's a neuroscientist, so mm-hmm. he brings he brings a full understanding of the brain yeah. to an activity of the brain. Yeah. So it it rings true and it, it it's more trustworthy. Yeah. So that idea, I loved it of like channeling business ideas Ooh. and these things just coming through you in yeah. meditation as if they're not your own, but Yeah. They are your own because well, that's, because is, yeah they are they 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 started somewhere in, yeah so, well that's that's is, a great somebody ask you right now is this the free will discussion we're well about not to not, start? not necessarily <laughs> no no but, but let me just ask you because it's it's, an, it's a living question there's no right or wrong answer for any of us but if I asked you like um, where did your last thought come from where did any thought come from what's your answer so my thought is that meditation helps open up layers of the unconscious Mm. which we didn't know were there anymore and it's just recovering things from from the unconscious parts of ourselves Mm. and opening up those doors and and meditation is one of the only ways in my experience that have been able to do that Mm. but also sometimes getting to flow states through Mm. physical activity as well like the the ideas that come into your head during a run or after a run yeah or a bike ride, it's uh, another way of getting into that realm of, of that subconscious. It's murky down there. We don't yeah. really understand it, but that's uh, that's my answer. Okay, that makes sense to me. I'm just thinking specifically. Like Rumble to me seemed at the time more like my own idea. Like I, it felt it felt like it was coming from me. Some of these other business ideas I've had are, are like I'm just. It seems like they come out of the blue, and then they're not related to a train of thought. Um, so I can I can trace back Rumble like hmm I'm here I have a need I learn about a relationship I see an absence in the marketplace and it's like oh well naturally this arises some of them have come when I'm in meditation like this it seems like just random it's kind of like when you haven't thought of a friend for a couple of years and then suddenly um, it's like oh like Charles and then like two seconds later Charles calls you and you haven't seen him in ten years it's like whoa like it's it's like you're tapping into that. I was going to say, have yeah. you tapped into something internal or external? Has it yeah. come from outside your consciousness? Yeah. Oh, boy, we're getting in deep waters okay, wait, now. But, oh, oh, oh. but, but, or, or <laughs> is it in there and you've, you've, yeah. you've been able to uncover it? Well, we, we will back our way out of this because otherwise we'll go off the deep end. Yes, but we just, will. Just yeah. to answer your question, like I, but for our guests that are, yeah. li- that yeah. are riveted right now, yeah, let's yeah. Keep, yeah, yeah, <laughs> no, well, we can keep I do, talking. I do. It's yeah. come to me lately that I have yeah. to cons- reconsider whether or not that I have an individual consciousness and, and that, and I think it's the I've real I must admit like I've been really influenced by um, a fellow named Rupert Spira who is a a guy who was a pottery he was just a, a guy who did pottery in England and then he sort of stumbled into some realizations you might say kind of like an Eckhart Tolle kind of character yeah. and you know he would argue very articulately and much better than I could ever try that we need to look at the a couple of possible different assumptions about what the nature of the universe is and um, they're both unprovable. One would be that matter is primary and that in the very first thing there ever was was matter and from which eventually consciousness emerges. And another assumption or model would be consciousness is primary and from which, you know, matter uh, is formed. And this, he would he would suggest that there's one less logical leap. Like if you use Occam's razor as a sort of parallel example of what's the simplest explanation in our own experience from observation, um, it might be 
easier to say that consciousness is primary. And then from that, it would be, uh, it would make a lot more sense when we talk about things. For sure. Yeah, and the yeah. unconscious or the, the connection between people. That's all kind of sounds irrelevant, but for the fact that you were asking about meditation and about health and about business. And I think um, certainly you look at like the invention of the telephone with, uh, I forget the name of the other guy, but there's Alexander Graham Bell and there's other guy. And like they both have the idea so like such in such close proximity to one another. Yeah. My thought has always been like when I came up with Rumble, I'm like, I knew there would be like other people come up with similar concepts within um, a year. Like it's just, it's the evolution of human consciousness yeah. together. We're all, whether they're individual or collective conscious, whether we well, believe that or look not. Look at Steve Jobs, Bill Gates, right? Yeah. You're right. They're, yeah. they're literally coming up with that the same time, the yeah. exact same time. And you yeah. see that happen all the time. Yeah. yeah. I like it. We were talking about the parallels between the, between rumble mm-hmm. and its yeah. ascension <laughs> and not that that wasn't great because no, it good. was it's good, yeah. but just yeah. because we were supposed to have a topic today of course yeah yeah <laughs> um there was parallels between rumble and your own health yeah and at at what point did rumble it it was moving forward with mm-hmm. with the team that you created mm-hmm. and then where was your health at at that point sure so look yeah just give more detail because sometimes the story gets oversimplified for the sake of um like we tried to share that recently on our website. We we had a lot of fun filming the video. I saw that. Yeah. It was based on it's just based on real life, like yeah. things we like to do and places we like to go. But but because of editing, as you know, editing sometimes you have to make things more concise, and you've got like three hours worth of, worth of information, and you're trying to put it in like a minute and a half. But the real truth of the matter is is that we we had the team together. We had these you know initial um, drinks. We worked so hard on combining like you know flavor and and the technical aspects of combining them all in one drink, but, but we still needed money uh, to, to get the first product run done. Then I got sick. I was so sick and we can talk more about this in a minute and the insights that are associated with it. But I got so sick that I was an auction 24 seven that I needed, you know, you, you can't actually even imagine how tough it was to be tethered to the oxygen tank and still have so little energy that you can't even brush your teeth. Wow. Like it's sitting at a sink and having to have my wife hold an electric toothbrush. Cause I'm not even capable of holding so you get to that sick and I was um, flown by Air Ambulance to Toronto. And so at that point, the team is trying to raise funds for the initial launch of Rumble. And it's 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 going to the point where we're almost depleted. So there's a parallel here that becomes like my health is going downhill. The the very uh, young company that doesn't even have a product yet is is about to be extinguished because we can't get the initial funds to do an initial product run. And, you know, my teammates were, were trying really hard, but it's a, it's a tough pitch when you're meeting with entrepreneurs and they're like, so who's this, who's this Paul guy? Where is he? Oh, he's in Toronto or he's in Vancouver, whatever. He's waiting for new lungs and, you know, oh, <laughs> so you, you got this guy that's that close to death and that's sort of like a cornerstone of the company. <laughs> like who wants to give you money? And, and so that was really challenging. Um, I'll jump over the part where obviously I'm still alive and I'm healthy. I got a lung transplant. When I got back from Toronto with my new lungs, I think the team was probably pretty stoked to have me back, that everyone got a little energized. I was able to add some fuel to the fire. And shortly thereafter, we we landed, we did Dragon's Den and we got funded. And so as my health improved coming out of transplant and I was starting to do more physically, I was starting to do uh, ride my bike and get involved in, in even running the TC10K and uh, a few things, the health of the company just started 
it was exponentially rising, not because of me, but I'm just saying there was a, there was a close. It's a great story if you yeah. say it's because of you. Yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> <laughs> no, but I, I mean, it's, it's all tied together. So the health of my sure. personal health and the company were just taking off in, a, in an amazing rate that, that went beyond our wildest expectations. So let's not get too ahead of ourselves. Yeah. You, yeah. you glossed over it. Like, yeah. yeah, so I got new lungs and then <laughs> I, I know. started improving. How can you ever gloss over that? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, so. it's, worth, it's, worth, it's, worth, it's worth, I think, um, just for the sake of inspiring people to perhaps register as organ donors if they haven't already. Um, I think I will say something just about that, about what that was like. Um, if that's, if this is a suitable time. Yeah, to share please that. do. Yeah. So, so as I say, I had gotten to a point due to the CF um, where my lungs had deteriorated such that, um, you know, I was on oxygen 24-7. I was in, almost always in the hospital. I'd come home a couple of times and not in, you know, anyone who's eating can, you know, cover their ears for the next 30 seconds. But basically part of the challenge was the lungs would spontaneously bleed. I'd have what's called a massive hemoptysis and there would frequently be you know, about two to 300 mils of blood within five minutes that would come from the lungs. So I'd be coughing and feel kind of like you're drowning. Like it's, I don't know if anyone's ever had a near drowning experience, but that's the, it was like the most awful thing. And it would often happen in the middle of the night. So I'd wake up and, and it'd be two or three in the morning and I'd be coughing up blood. And, and combined with that, the lungs aren't working well and you're short of breath already and you're on oxygen. So would you be pan- yeah. panicking in those moments? Uh, and when at first, it sounds really funny to say the first couple of times it happened. Yeah, absolutely. Like your blood pressure goes through the roof, but you learn that if your blood pressure is high, you're going to bleed more and you run the risk of, of dying. I actually asked my doctor, I'm like, is it possible I'll, I'll bleed to death? And he said, um, no, no, generally you would drown in your own blood. Like that was just very dry. Wow. Some reassuring. Wow. Yeah. He was a, he was a yeah. phenomenal doctor, but he was very, and I, and I really appreciated his frankness on so many things. That particular day was a little disconcerting. <laughs> um, and not all doctors have the best bedside manner, yeah. but actually I really appreciated his, his directness. And so it was a fear in the first days, but I realized I have got to calm my blood pressure. Um, and it, it's actually, there's a really interesting thing here about, about compassion and what love looks like and what, in the sense that um, when it happened the first time when I was in the hospital, I was basically in the hospital for antibiotic treatment through IVs to help quell the the severity of the infection. And it happened in the hospital when I rang the bell and the nurse came in and she saw the blood. She said, oh my gosh, oh my gosh. And she started like, they only have limited things they can do. And in fact, there's very little you can do when your lungs are bleeding. So the nurse comes in and she's all like, and they made me feel so cared for. She's like running around. She's like, okay, just sit calm. And she's taking my blood pressure and like, you know, and, and get, bring the towel to clean up my face and clean the blood and get rid of it. And, and the three nurses eventually were running around doing all this. And I felt very cared for and, and attended to, but at the same time, I knew ultimately there's nothing that they could really do. So that was my example of the awesome care I got at the Royal Jubilee Hospital. When I was lifted by air ambulance um, and taken to Toronto, the first time it happened in Toronto, I looked down and I was quite worried. There was like a lot of blood and I was, it, it wasn't clear that it was going to stop anytime soon. And the nurse walks in and uh, she looks down and there's, like I say, about 250 mils in it and one of the white styrofoam coffee cups and it's just to the top. And I said, like, help, like, you know, like, uh, I don't know what to do here. And she's like, she's, uh, she's like, I've seen worse. She <laughs> says, and she slowly walks over this sink. And I'm like, and wow. I knew, like, Toronto sees a lot of people. This is like a CF-specific ward. So whereas in Victoria, I might be the only person in or maybe right. one other person. There's like 18 people with CF on the ward at St. Mike's at any one time. And I was like, oh, she's seen worse. I immediately was like, oh, okay, well, I'm not going to die right now then. Like, this is, this is all right. 
And only days later that I realized she actually told me she'd never seen anything like it. <laughs> she's, wow. she's like, and see what that was just when I, wow. I, I complained to my wife. I'm like, she didn't even care. She was like nonchalant. <laughs> and, and then inside she was like freaking out, but she was just keeping a still huh. and calm presence. And, um, this is probably a little bit too much information, but like one of the times there, there was a chunk of it looked like an earplug. And I'm like, what the hell is that? Is that going to make lungs? And she's like, no, 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 relax. You've got CF. That's just a mucus plug. It's it's actually fairly common. And that's true. I heard about this. I'd never seen one or, you know, and I was kind of like disturbed. But um, she goes, yeah, but I'll, I'll, just for your peace of mind, we'll get it taken to the lab. And they went to the lab and she came back and she said, congratulations. In the 40 years of nursing, you're the first person who's ever actually coughed up section of their lung (laughs) and it was actually lung stuff literally my lungs are disintegrating and I was coughing up my lungs so that to back up that's why I was transferred to Toronto at the time I think I was only the second person in BC history to be taken from from BC to Toronto for a transplant um, Mm. because they do have a great center here in Vancouver but the list was such that I wasn't going to live because I was going downhill so quickly so that led to me being taken by air ambulance out there. It's very challenging with the different jurisdictions because the provinces are responsible for healthcare, not the feds. Um, and I had to go through a few hoops there and spend a few nights um, in St. Mike's before I was listed on a Thursday night and um, expecting roughly three to four months of wait. And I got the call the next morning, which was Good Friday, delivered by a nurse named Grace. Hmm. And uh, it was uh, <laughs> one of those things where you know, I had been really wondering whether I was going to um, make it to transplant or not. And so to get that news in the hospital was um, <laughs> one of the best moments of my life, you know, obviously. So, yeah, I was very, very lucky. And that's because somebody um, and their family, somebody registered as an organ donor and, and let their family know that that's, was, that was what they wanted. So, and here we are two days away from a Good Friday. This is it. Yeah. Very important and, uh, long anniversary for me. And we're in Organ Donation Awareness Month. We are yes. indeed. Yeah. So that's, it's just a, one of those reminders that if you've ever thought about it um, and haven't got around to it, it takes two minutes to register online as an organ owner in most jurisdictions. Um, and it's, it's so easy. Yet here in BC, I think um, if you survey, about 80% of people want to be registered as organ donors and only approximately 20, 18 to 20% of us are actually registered so 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 what do you think is the main obstacle why people aren't aren't taking the two minutes to do it honestly i think it's like it's kind of like you know when you want to clean the garage or the basement and you're like it's on your list of things to do but it just doesn't seem like high priority because honestly to be an organ donor you kind of have to die you do actually (laughs) nine times out of ten you you don't actually for a liver transplant you can be a living donor and, and kidneys but for for, for people who think about it as being an organ donor and registering for it, it's it's not high on the list of things that need to be done today or this week. And for that reason, um, sometimes, you know, we just we just don't get around to it. And I would encourage people to rethink that and think, you know, the point of each day we live is to feel good about what we accomplished. And you can actually feel really good for a relatively small amount of effort. It takes two minutes. And uh, we never know when our moment's up. We never know when, when you know, the opportunities there and because I've lost a friend I had a friend who was on the wait list and who had every reason to think was gonna make it um, but the lungs didn't come in time and he was a young young man who, who died you know far well you know if you're, if you're only 25 you, you've got your whole life ahead of you so to see that um, tragic unfolding and only because of lack of organs really makes me realize how fortunate I was how much gratitude I have for my donor and uh, his family and 
And for all those who have already taken the time to register, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a real selfless thing to do. I wonder if it's partly related to with, with people who take their time to get life insurance. It's this yeah. whole idea of perhaps just going through that. Mm. They're admitting that yeah, death is a reality in their life. Totally. Um, and they just want to stay away from that realm. Totally. So and that's a very good point. And I think yeah. you're right. I think, you know, this unconscious fear of like, don't, sure. even, don't even go there because I'm no. not going to die. Exactly. And so since I'm not going to die, I don't have to worry about being an organ donor. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. Yeah. Reality check time. Mm-hmm. It happens. Yeah. And another stat is that five people per week die mm. on the organ list, on the yeah. donation list. So yeah. it is a, a selfless act. And we were speaking a lot about the collective consciousness. Mm-hmm. And one thing you can do to support life to avoid people dying unnecessarily mm-hmm. is is take that time and just make a the right moral choice exactly yeah. yeah so we've spoken a lot about how miraculous the body is and how it does things we've got our whole unconscious and our unconscious is what powers our lungs and our hearts and our livers what was the feeling like or or were you conscious of having new lungs in your body other than the fact that obviously they were working better was there any consciousness of an organ that that you weren't (laughs) familiar with or what what was your experience like Mm. as you came out of the surgery and and in the weeks that followed well i like i like the question because it's one that i get a lot and it's good to address it um the the I think it was a great book. I think it's called The Heart Code written about this topic. So if anyone's interested in it, um, they can certainly pick it up. My experience um, was a little bit disappointing, to be honest, in the, in, the, in the first stages. So just to back up to where I'm in Toronto and I get that call, it's it's a very difficult surgery. I was on the table for eight or nine hours. Um, we've we've advanced a lot in this surgery in that, in that lungs are the most complicated organ to go. Like a heart is really kind of easy. Um, kidneys are relatively easy, liver, you know, you get a little more challenging, but lungs are the hardest and you're on the table for the longest and it's really complicated to, to remove a lung and get a new one in there and then remove the other one. It's kind of like replacing the engines on an aircraft in mid-flight and it's wow. pretty, 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 yeah. pretty dicey. What so, an analogy. Yeah, yeah there's, there's all kinds of, uh, I've seen photos of myself coming out of surgery and they're not things I like to look at because you've got tubes and wires and but yeah, it's a nine-hour surgery. And so going into that, I was really lighthearted. I'd actually been wheeled away. And I was like, I was just I was just giddy. I was just singing to my wife. I'm like, I'm on my way. I don't know where I'm going. So this is like the theme that that song, uh, Paul Simon, was, was in my head. But when I woke up, um, you know, it was very different. The drugs that they give you can have a negative effect. I'm sensitive, it turns out, to those the the drugs that they use so i was i woke up in a um you can't breathe you've got a tube in uh, you're intubated and I, my wife told me i was trying to communicate something using pen and paper but i was completely incomprehensible writing and i don't remember what it was but apparently i was really frustrated and then the nurse was like had to tell my wife who's like just absolutely emotionally distraught having spent the whole night up waiting for me to see if i'm going to live through the surgery and then i'm trying to communicate something and i'm clearly suffering and she can't read she can't help me and the nurse is like step away from this patient you know he's gonna he's gonna need some time and what it felt like it was like a seat belt wrapped around my chest from the you're, you're yeah. stapled together like they split you wide open and uh the staples holding you together and and uh, tubes coming out i had four tubes into me that are like garden hoses basically to help drain from the surgery and uh a tube down your throat so it's, it's pretty horrible to wake up from that even though you should be theoretically 
filled with gratitude that you're yeah. alive and this there's a few people who have the like I take a deep breath and it's fantastic and where, yeah. whereas I was like I can't breathe and I can't speak and wow. uh, it's kind of terrifying so it did take a while to to get used to it and when it did and it finally they weaned me off those drugs that had a really my sister gave them a funny name because every time I took them like about 50 minutes later it became a total uh, I don't know we can, we can swear on this one asshole yeah, yeah total, exactly she called them the asshole yeah. pills she's like she's like oh no he's taking his meds you know we got well, 50 minutes until he goes crazy yeah. and, let's uh, go for a walk exactly my wife and my sister were like oh no he's gonna take those pills again when I weaned off those pills I became a normal human being again uh, thank God because my mm. wife didn't know if it was a personality change so coming full circle the long answer to your question but what did I notice um Thankfully, it wasn't the lungs that were giving me the the jerk-like personality in the, in the early days. It was really the, the drugs. As I, the one thing I noticed was an absolute curiosity about foods that I'd never wanted to eat. So I'm like eating goat cheese and kiwis and just like all kinds of foods that I had never really had any interest in. That was intriguing. It may have been equally the prednisone, which can give you quite the appetite. It may have been having been sick for years, but certainly. Um, three weeks to the day for the surgery, I walked down uh, Queen Street, Toronto. It was about 25 or 26 degrees. Um, and it, it was just gorgeous. And I could smell all the, the smells of the, the food being, and I was just so full of life. Like my sister and my wife couldn't keep up to me. I was just like mm. trucking down there. And, mm. and so that energy and joy for life, you know, was that my own? Was it, was it a gift? Was it the realization of the gift for the lungs? Was it the energy of that person who had given me? I don't, or some combination there, but I really don't know. Yeah, people talk about a new lease on life or getting a second chance. Mm -hmm. Was that your reality? And what did you tell yourself if if that was the Mm. case? What what did you tell yourself about what you're going to do with the rest of your (laughs) life? Great question. And it it has equal parts to do with how I felt that day in the sunshine with the sun on my face and, and full deep breaths of pure Sounds funny for Toronto air, but what felt like pure air to me, given the challenges of breathing earlier. But it has equal parts to do with that and how I felt, I would say, bringing back to the lowest point possible before going to Toronto, where I lay with what I would consider the lowest chi or whatever we want to call that life force that flows within us and is gone when we die. And that was at an absolute low in December, um, even more so than in January, February, March. It was in December um, of eight years ago that I remember Sandra, my wife, had drawn me a bath and had helped me get into the bath and I was lying there like barely able to even move like to get a washcloth in my arm and I lay back and I looked and, and I just sort of felt into what this whole what, what is life all about anyway like it was sort of that question like it was the first time I'd really fully acknowledged that we're all gonna die and in that sense like oh I am gonna die it may not be today or this week or prior to transplant maybe I'll get transplant maybe I won't but it was like oh I'm gonna die <sighs> and just sitting with that. And then when I think when I really accepted that, and that's the thing, you can't force acceptance. And, you know, it came over me. And then I was like, oh, oh. And then this phrase popped into me. That's why I said, like, sometimes thoughts seem to, like, pop out of nowhere. And it was just a phrase which, on the face of it, in English, is just a boring phrase. It sounds like a title for a cheesy song. But but it, it was filled with such meaning that immediately I knew what my life would consist of if I could get new lungs, if I could get that new lease on life. And the phrase was um, sort of like the cue or the sort of like symbol. It was simply like, 
Um, love is all. Like those three words. It was like, and, and from that, I understood like, oh, there's all these opportunities that I haven't seized. And it, whether that's like smiling at a grocery clerk or the person who's packing, whether that's, whether that's like, you know, calling your friend or reaching out, like these, these, these micro opportunities each and every day, and these bigger opportunities to live from that place of the felt realization um, of love. And it was like, oh no. So par- partially regret for the missed opportunities so far, but more like fuel, like, man, if I make it through this, you know, like it just seems so ridiculous. Our focus on RSPs and savings and, and stuff when it's so easy with so little money to bring pleasure to people and, and, and like, you know, whether it's flowers or, you know, a, a chocolate bar or whatever else, the little tiny things we can do or, or, or things that don't even cost money, things that just maybe smile at a stranger and how that has a ripple effect. And it all sounds cheesy and, and cliche, but it's, it's cliche because it's true. And, and these things came to me my lowest point. So when I fast forward to being on that, on that sunshine on that day, like everything seemed filled with the opportunity to celebrate life. And so to live from love in the way that we celebrate life, even the way that we walk, the way that we enter into uh, a store, the way we, we go to work, like there's, there's every single moment offers us this opportunity. And that to me was really instilled on that day when I was in the bath and I was like, just an absolute, low and it was also that day when i was full of life and and bursting with potential when i came out paul i'm listening to that a wonderful moment um what it made me think of is before that time you had talked about um almost living in denial of death Mm. pushing it aside Mm -hmm. and then in this moment you're in the bath and you're overcome with this you know your words of feeling like knowing for the first time I am going to die. Maybe mm-hmm. not in this moment, but mm-hmm. but I am going to die. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden that moves to um love is all. Mm-hmm. And it's I wonder if 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 you saw that as maybe perhaps a bit of a, the death of an, of your ego. Mm, yeah. In that moment in that moment. And, and then yeah. for for that moment it was almost like maybe a perhaps a sneak peek. I'm not sure. <laughs> That's just what I thought of <laughs> as I was I was as I was listening. Well, I um I have experienced ego death in other circumstances um, temporarily, mind you. I've got a very healthy ego, um, but I've yeah. had temporary ego death, and it's a it was a little different than that. But I would say the way that I sometimes think about it, and and you'll have to forgive me because my wife calls me bad analogy man because I come up with these uh, ridiculous analogies. But but I think of us sometimes <laughs> we go through life. All of us, um, all of us can say that there's this, and words are very difficult here because we're using dualistic language to describe a non-dual reality i would suggest yeah but we have what i would call or eckhart tolle would call like presence right beingness or some people use the word stillness whatever and that that we all all have that so think of it like two knobs kind of like bass and treble but this one's like beingness and it can be like one to ten in terms of how much you're feeling or identifying with it even it may, it may always be at 10 but we feel like it's at one two or three and then there's like ego and mental and mind all of which i'm kind of using synonymously and that's really predominantly where i spend most of my time is is you feel into where's my identity and you kind of reach up towards your head and it's up above your neck and that might be from you know one to ten as well and so what it felt like in that bathtub if i could use this really rough analogy was that instead of being you know the the mind and mental activity and ego sense is up seven, eight or nine out of 10 and being this is around two or three. It's like someone was uh, the ultimate DJ, you know, the inner DJ was mixing with those, um, with those. And it was more like being is coming up to like six, seven, eight mm. and ego is coming down to like, you know, one or two ego death being zero 
and presence or beingness being 10. So this was like, per your suggestion, it was like a, if not a death, it was like egos on life support, right? <laughs> not just yeah. the body. And then, but beingness naturally shines through in, in that state, it seems to me, and that experience. And when that feeling really lacks descriptors, and so different people are all going to use different words. And if you're listening on the level of mind, you'll think, oh, that's weird. So-and-so uses these words and so-and-so uses these words. And so it depends on cultural context, religious or lack of religious context. And some people are going to call it God. Some people will call it beingness. Some people will just use very um, different language. But that to me was the experience of diminishment of the ego combined with a deeper realization of um, that which is or whatever kind of fancy spiritual language you might like to use. Yeah. Beautiful. So if we, where can, do you go from there? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> We're not good enough at this yet. No, no. It's like this, this, this is the funniest great. thing. It's 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 really difficult for me to talk about anything without coming back to these these uh, no, fundamental it. life lessons because it informs everything that I feel I do, whether that's, you know, activity or health or nutrition. And so to not occasionally at least touch our toes into um, the ultimate reality and nature of life. No, you know what? When, when we have every guest that's come on, we have a general idea of the sort of story arc as we call yeah, it. Yeah. But what we love the most is just the person shares their life. Right. The, that yeah. untapped part that nobody could know. Right. And yeah, that's, that's yeah. I think, going to be the gold of, of, of this episode for sure. We really appreciate you sharing. Oh, thank and you. I find it fascinating. Yeah, so oh, good. We'll be, we'll be talking more. Yeah. No, sure. it, it's, yeah, yeah. it's great stuff. Yeah. Now, when you were maybe just coming out of the hospital mm. and you were beginning the recovery, I believe a friend challenged you to uh, a bike mm. endeavor <laughs> yeah. that you felt at that time was uh, was so far from the realm of possibilities, yeah. but you ended up being able to accomplish it. You... Oh, yeah, I would love to talk about that. It's, uh, it was two different aspects to that, actually. Um, the fellow's name was Brian Benson. His wife, Margaret Benson, truly an inspirational story of these two. Margaret had a lung transplant and Brian who has had cancer. So it's very, they have some parallels to our lives. But she'd had a transplant before me. Brian had been, had helped her through that. And Brian, who knew, um, had a past history of cycling. And I hadn't ridden a bike in any meaningful way in over 10 years when we met them for coffee. And he said to me, Paul, you're going to get a transplant. And when you do, I'll, um, I'll happily pay for you to do the tour of Victoria because he wanted to come over and and uh, redo the tour of Victoria. He'd had a he'd gone off route, I guess, the one time he'd come over and, <laughs> and done this. And I, it just seems so far-fetched. The last time I tried to ride a bike, I'd had to get my wife to tow me home and held onto her seat. And um, I couldn't even ride a bike on flat ground. So when he's saying, we're going to, you know, we'll ride the tour of Victoria together. And, and, and I knew what the hills involved in it. And I was just thought it seemed so preposterous. Um, but I'm like, sure thing, Brian. Yeah, I'll, uh, I'll join you on that. And, and, you know, even in the first days after transplant, I say first days, I mean first weeks, uh, I had to go to Vancouver because I had a um, CMV virus that needed treatment uh, out of Toronto. And I tried riding a bike and yeah, I felt great sitting here, like sitting down or or walking. But when I got on the bike, I was so slow. The, the hill of the Burrard Bridge was one that I remember this old lady on a trike-like bike and she seemed to be in her 70s. Uh, no disrespect to, to ladies on trikes in the seventies, but to see her she pass me, blew past she you. blew past me and I was like, I was winded. I was like, oh, man. And I was all like, these lungs aren't working like they should. And I'm, I, it was a few defeatist thoughts, which right. are uncharacteristic of me. But I was like, oh man, I'm never going to be able to, to ride a bike or go with Brian some hundred K ride. And, but sure enough, within a year, 
Brian and my friend uh, Chris Karch, who would similarly join me and, and challenge me and say, like, you know, like, basically, we think you can do it and I'll do it with you. So um, it ended up being, uh, yeah, Ty, Chris and Brian and I ended up doing the Tour of Victoria uh-huh. uh, at the time, which was the, uh, the only distance was 140K. And um, mm-hmm. with their help and their encouragement, both in training and in, um, um, you know, the day of, I was able to do that. And um, yeah, it was, it was hugely emotional for me. My, my sister was a big encouragement. She'd, she'd made signs and they stood on the, uh, on the side of the road, on Mun Road, um, you know, encouraged me to, to finish that particularly steep section. And it, it felt like unbelievably symbolic of, of what everything I'd been through. And it's such overwhelming gratitude to everybody along the way who'd helped me. Because I literally wouldn't have been there. But for, of course, you can see the donor and the family, absolutely. The doctors and nurses and all those that helped keep me going and keep me living um but all my wife like more than anyone like all these people and so you would come to you during the ride and you're like it's all you could do to have not have an emotional breakdown while yeah. you're while you're doing that yeah. i think back to your bathtub moment oh, in the yeah. moment when your wife was helping you brush your teeth yeah and then when you cross that finish line that must have been the most euphoric <laughs> it was unbelievable the yeah. most euphoric moment so i get chills just thinking about it it's absolutely like, yeah yeah so where did that gratitude take you after that well, it really it sort of like that was proving to other people and to myself of what was possible. I, and I'd hoped it would be inspiring to those that were waiting for transplant because I had known and identified so much as the pre-transplant or the, the person who doesn't know when is that call going to come. And, and talk about a weird shift of identity. Like one day you're pre-transplant and it's a mystery as to if you'll get a transplant and when it might be. And then a day or a week later, you're that guy who had the transplant. And it's like, whoa, how did that identity shift so quickly? Yeah. So at that time, when it was like, am I going to be able to drive this? Because it's a question. And then as soon as you finished, it became, okay, this was fantastic. What can I do now to give back? And then somebody had whispered in my ear, I think it was Brian yesterday, uh, about the Gear Up for CF, which is a charity ride, which at the time was a nine-day ride going from Vancouver to Banff through some of the steepest mountains in the Rockies. Um, and if anyone who rides knows the difference between, you know, flat and hills and even getting up, yeah. like think of Hope, if you guys have been on the highway, yeah. up to the Hope Absolutely. slide area. Like that's the first, it's actually a great ride. It's a two-day ride that now with the Gear for CF, uh, two or three days where they, they go up over that. And it's like, that was like, okay, if I could do Mun Road, I wonder how, if I could ever do that ride up to, to Hope and the rides through the Rockies, so that became a goal, and that became a way that I could both give back, raise awareness and money uh, for cystic fibrosis uh, research, and also stay in shape and demonstrate to myself uh, and find out, you know, what, what I'm capable of, and to the extent that I could do it, hopefully inspire others in both transplant um, people who are waiting for transplant and those who might not have yet registered as as, as donors. So I thought as a win-win, like everybody wins if I can train and fundraise and do this do this ride. So I actually did that ride two years in a row. I think it was 2013 and 2014. Wow. And um, you meet such incredibly inspiring people that are people that are so selfless that have uh, volunteered, you know, year after year for this endeavor. Um, you know, the different sponsors and people that come together to make it possible and, and the privilege of riding with all these people who are given up nine days of their summer um, to do something. And sometimes you're riding in horrendous like rain and stuff. It sounds all like, oh yeah, cool. I'll ride from Vancouver to, to Banff. And, it doesn't but it's sound like, that no. cool. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, it, it, the it, scenery it, would be beautiful, I'm yeah, sure. But yeah, I'm sure you're not 
even appreciating it though no, when you're on the hills <laughs> it's, it's hard there's a few times when yeah. we stop but like yeah sometimes in the torrential rain or getting yeah. up early and it's yeah. like you're just you're sore like people would develop For you sure. know uh, saddle sores and whatever else and sure. you, you, to persevere through that pain um it just it, but it was like you realize hold on this is nothing compared to the suffering that people with CF live with every day. That you've lived through. Well, in my, I, I, I lived through it only for, I'd say, like, a, like the, the peak of that suffering only for about a year, whereas some other people have to live with that for like eight or nine years. And then mm-hmm. they die. I thought of all the people I know who, who died when they were teenagers. And I think of the suffering of their families and the anguish that they would have had. So then it puts in perspective. And when you're grinding up that hill and you're like, okay, it's wet and I'm sore and I'm hungry and I'm cold and I'm tired. But then you think of the of the family mourning the loss of somebody and you're like, okay, it doesn't even, it's a drop in the bucket comparison. So you're able to, to live that. And so that was a real privilege to do the rides those two years. The the metaphor of the hill to hope. Yeah, literally. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Powerful. And And it comes back to that, the motivator of others, right? That, that is the greatest driver, like to get up through those hills, Mm. thinking of other people and how, you're helping ease their suffering potentially. That, Hopefully, yeah. I, in terms of my story, that's what got me through a marathon was mm, was doing yeah. it for for somebody I really cared about. Yeah. Um. So it's that you you used the word selfless earlier, and these selfless acts, people giving up a huge part of their summer to do something selfless. But the the amazing thing about doing selfless things is there's actually a pretty incredible benefit that you feel, mm-hmm. which still it's still a wonderful act it doesn't make mm. it selfish but but it's a, it's a true it's a great, win-win great byproduct yeah. of doing oh. selfless acts <laughs> yeah. it is in fact um and we won't go too far down this track but anthony de has written a few good books um there's one with the title awakening that i really liked and in that book he talks about how every act is selfish like there's the selfish ones that are just for you and then if you get pleasure giving to others when you do those acts that's also a different kind of selfishness that we generally regard as being pretty cool if we see people doing that but by that argument he would suggest like mother Teresa was selfish because she really enjoyed helping poor people and no for and, sure you know yeah. and, it's, and it's valid and I'm, yeah. I'm not going to go into any depth in that but if you're I always love that book that's an old book by um like I say Anthony DeMello I really enjoy yeah that. <laughs> sure yeah it'll be in the show notes yeah, yeah. <laughs> I we're we're nearing the end of our our experience here but I want to just talk about rumble again a little bit because I know that that there's been a, a resurgence of rumble mm. or s- maybe that's the wrong mm. way of putting it but i know mm. rumble's had some challenges mm-hmm. after the initial launch and yep. if you want to just speak to that and what a little bit of what you went through from struggles yeah. in entrepreneurship and, yeah. and and where you're at now absolutely and there are like i mean it's a pretty uh egocentric perspective but i, I do see these parallels between my own health journey and um the journey of rumble that were they were quite curious in the coincidental timing of it. And what I'm getting at there is, um, I think it alluded to the fact that we'd had really uh, unbelievably quick acceptance and growth in the early stages. Like we we went from being, all of us, the first time really food entrepreneurs to uh, and, a, and a team that really was ignorant of how things might unfold to, to seeing the, the pickup across the country and the sales um, go faster than anybody had anticipated. And so similarly with my own health, I was able to do things that I hadn't, um, anticipated. I was able to start doing mountain biking. I really enjoyed cyclocross racing. I'd enjoyed, you know, all these different aspects of uh, fitness and especially cycling that I was like just delighted with. Even trying, you know, like like a few races and stuff. With the company, um, we we had a, an investor ally in Toronto who was, in retrospect, too aggressive. Like just really wanted to go go big or go home. 
And part of that appealed to me. I got to take my responsibility there and saying that we were a team of four, but we allowed ourselves to be convinced by this um, sort of, mm, I would say, overly aggressive, um, you know, pitch that we could go into the States, that we could be, you know, across North America, and, and yet we were radically undercapitalized. And so that put so much um, pressure, particularly on my um, co-founder, James, to, to go out and, and try to raise repeated rounds of capital at a time when we really should have been consolidating the growth in in Canada, in retrospect. And the parallels to that in my life was that I, I got so excited with uh, the potential and, and, the, and the idea that, you know, oh, I can inspire other people. And I think hiding a little bit of ego in there, like not recognizing there was ego was creeping back up that had been diminished with that sort of dial down in the bathtub moment was slowly coming back up. And it was a great cover narrative. Oh, and this is, this is just about inspiring other people. Was it though? You know, I look at mm -hmm. what I was doing and it got to a point, it was ridiculous. I ended a really fun criterium um, that uh, we, the Oak Bay bike shop hosted down in, in Windsor Park. And it was, and I entered the men's, you know, like C level, which is basically like older guys and young kids. And so it's nothing to be um, particularly proud of, but I, I had hadn't raced in like, since I was 14. So it was like, wow, this is super exciting. And um, and we'd gone around and actually been wiped out and take, taken down and, um, it's funny the messages you don't hear because later, later I ended up shattering my femur just actually a few months after that. But I went down in this race and broke my hip. And quick expression yeah, there, yeah. I think Mike Tyson said it, it: "If you're not humble, life will humble you." Yeah, that's that's been so true in my case. Anyway, so I that day I won that race. Um, the same day that I, like I, I what should I say? Not a big deal. It's mostly older men and young kids, so it's not a big deal. But it was so fun for me to live that fantasy as a kid of winning the bike race and. You know, as far as I, I felt like Peter Sagan or something, like I felt like, you know, Olympic gold medal. But I left before the podium ceremony to go race a, a cross-country mountain bike race because I was so, like, it was the same day and I, just, I couldn't get enough of it. And that, that hunger for, for competition and proving myself and for competing and just feeling the lust of life, like this, the, the wanting to take the bull by the horns, was paralleled with Rumble where, you know, I sort of, uh, among my teammates, we sort of, let's go for it. We were for sale in Hawaii and Florida and Atlantic City. We were in Whole Foods. We were, we were going, flying all over the U.S. And it was like, it felt so exciting, but we were not being realistic. It was, it was uh, too much, too fast. And we paid the price for that. The, we had to borrow money. Um, the company basically, essentially almost collapsed completely. And, and similarly, my health, ran into challenges where as a consequence of pushing and overdoing it um my health ran down i got i started i, I got h1m1 i got the flu i gave that to my friends at a, at, a, at a a party at new year's and you know some of them were really suffering with that so i, I could see this like you say the humbling of life um i had as i said later i, I broke my earlier i broke my femur and then had a really hard time with that and the company um basically because of the lack of financing, even if you're growing in sales and demand, if you don't have the money to do the production runs, you've got a big cash flow problem. Essentially, we got led astray by a really aggressive investor who was, um, and, and that resulted in very nearly the, the whole company collapsing. At the end of the day, uh, thankfully, we we're, we we're saved by new financial, uh, like a financial restructuring and backed by um, some really good guys here on the island. And that's how the company survived to be. Oh to come out again with what we hope now is a significantly more successful, if probably slower growing company. <laughs> hmm. mm -hmm. I think that's such a common problem with growing businesses. Like I have a much smaller, smaller business, but I, I did the exact same thing mm. in terms of growing too fast. And it yeah. was all egoic related. Yeah. You know, I was just like, 
you know, I'm going to be the fastest growing business. We're going to take over. And I, I would say words like that. We're going to take over the island. And every call that came in, I'd say, yes, my employees would look at me with a look in their eye. Like, when? Yeah. When are we going to do this job? Yeah. Like, with what? Yeah. You know, and I'm just yeah. like, we're going to do it. Yeah. And, and, uh, and th- we hit a crunch point uh, a number of years ago where we came very close to some severe financial problems. My wife still, mm. well, she'll hear it now, but yeah. she, she still does. <laughs> Maybe we should edit that out. Whatever. <laughs> Vulnerability and authenticity. We're going to keep totally, it in. Totally, but yeah. we hit a point where, where it was very, it was very close to, to mm. be going under. Yeah. And, and you think it's a good thing, more sales, more revenue, mm. more interest, mm-hmm. you know, but the word cash flow. Oh, you know, it costs okay. a lot of money to grow. There's um, time to get yeah. to that point where you can support the growth. Yeah, and just to give it numbers, like we were at 1.3 million in debt. And, right, you know, we're right. talking, we'd only ever raised a few million at a time and, and compare that to our closest competitor that I'm thinking of in Canadian funds uh, had raised 100 million. How do you know for someone, as someone who has been willing to push the limits and your own limits and limits of business, but has also experienced going a little bit too far? Mm. How do you know where the limits are, are and, and, and when to stop pushing and step back? Well, that's the ultimate question. Like I've wrestled yeah. with that. And I've, like I say, I've gone to retreats and, you know, uh, really explored all kinds of um, interesting, you know, healing modalities. And that's the question I probably have to revisit on a daily and weekly basis. Like, you know, what's too, what's not enough and not, not, not honoring that need to, to celebrate and live life fully and what's too much. And I, my wife would tell you that I'm um, probably still doing too much. In fact, I have a lot of people that I trust that say my number one thing I need to learn is to be still because I'm a real dynamic person and I really enjoy engaging in life. And I think I'm still guilty of pushing too hard and saying yes and not knowing when to say no. I think we can all relate to that at some level. Yeah, um, for sure. But when, when your health is uh, on the line, it, it's, it tends to be a good, like say, like the Mike Tyson quote there, it's very humbling. And I've had in the past couple of years, I've, uh, in addition to since transplant, I think, you know, obviously the breaking the hip and femur were huge, but, you know, H1M1, um, CM, CMV virus was the first one, uh, you know, shingles. There's been all these things that like indicate not only the fact that I'm immunocompromised, but that I'm really um, stressing the body too much. And that's resulted in a significant loss of lung function that, um, you know, is, is, if I'm looking at the numbers, is about 40% lower than where I was when I did the Tour de Victoria and, and felt all, you know, or the, the rides to um, to Banff. And so it's like, that's a huge number. It's a significant loss of lung function. Thankfully, it's stabilized, but it's only because I've really, do, did, you know, done the deep dive on um, the mental side of things, on meditation and on season life. So I'm going to continue to find out where the line is. Right now, I, I feel like I'm doing not enough activity, but I'm doing more in terms of um, just like I'm socially spread out and I'm really, I'm really excited about the new direction Rumble's taking. I'm trying to lend a hand in, in every way that I can there. So it's like I've got to dial back on the social probably and put more emphasis on the, the inner uh, stillness and cultivating that uh, deeper peace from which ultimately I hope more productivity can emerge. Yeah. Mm. I relate. I relate to yeah. what you were just talking about there, trying to find the balance. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's, it's, it's so difficult. Because really as, as entrepreneurs, we're almost programmed to just have this, you know, you, you it's, it's difficult to even celebrate the wins. Like mm-hmm. I, I find, 
you know, I talk with my wife about this all the time. With Andrew and I, we talk about this all the time. You, you set a benchmark, you achieve it. And instead of celebrating, you're like, okay, what's the next one? Yeah, what's the, the next what's benchmark? The next, what's the next goal? It's society. Like, you, it doesn't matter what people accomplish. Yeah. The, the reporter will thrust a microphone and say, so what's next? Yeah, no, what's exactly. Next? You know, like Tiger Woods, you just won the Masters. What's, what's next? What's yeah. next? What's, it's, like, it's like this mantra that we are asking, which is the worst kind of mantra. It is. Like, it's like, what about right now? What about yeah. just hanging out here? Because that's a, a recipe for burnout, right? Because your body's totally. like, man, when, when can you give me, give me, you know, a high five for what I just totally. did? Like, yeah. Remember how hard it was for us to get to? that point and we did it and now you're in like do it again like yeah, yeah. come on how about be satisfied in this moment yeah and yeah then, so difficult worry about what comes next absolutely yeah that's our challenge yeah i was curious you know you got you got your new lungs eight years ago mm-hmm. how how long are, are these are these lungs supposed to last <laughs> did they did they yeah. say this yeah did, that's a great question because i know i know um i, I was read, gonna say the word warranty but it seemed yeah, kind of crass exactly <laughs> no it's like yeah I used to say for the longest time when I was, uh, you know, in my late 30s, I like, oh, that was beyond my best before date or beyond my expiry date. Yeah. And um, I didn't like the stats when I read about stats. Like, I've never been one. I took advanced stats in university. And I really enjoyed, for whatever reason, I really enjoyed taking those. But what I learned about, about how um, these things are created, uh, about how these numbers are drawn up allowed me to realize that I just couldn't focus too much on them but no. that said before transplant I had glanced or accidentally read you know about life expectancy being about seven or eight years post transplant and um, you know certainly when you get the diagnosis that I have due to the complications from pushing so hard and having the dramatic loss of lung function it's even worse so I was like oh man this is not cool like I was like but you know, I really don't believe in, in statistics. And I don't think at this time, I don't think it's just denial. Like I look to inspiration to my friend, Mark Benson of Vancouver, who's I think uh, 18 years post-transplant. Um, there's a woman, um, a wonderful woman with the name Colleen Cozy, who lived more than, I know it's more than 23 years, but she had, I think the Canadian or maybe world record for the longest living person post-transplant. So albeit those two I've just mentioned don't have the same um, diagnosis I do. I, I don't even think too much about how long these lungs will last. Um, I know how quickly things can change. I have a very good friend, um, James, who got married and then within a day or two of, of, of getting married, his lungs started going downhill rapidly. And within six months, he was in ICU waiting, possibly, hopefully, for a, a second pair of lungs to undergo a second transplant. And we watched you know, every day online for updates and were quite concerned. I think he I think it was nine weeks in the ICU on ECMO and another form of life support. Like you're, you're breathing through respirator and something's pumping your blood for you. And that was such a challenging thing to watch from a distance. I can't mm-hmm. even imagine how it was for his family. So that's what, it, it's more, not not more about like death, but the more the possibility that I would have to go through that kind of experience. Right. Several people who've been through a second transplant have said that they would choose death over a retransplant because the process is so brutal mm. that freaks me out it's like it's like Woody Allen yeah. I think um, I'm not afraid of death yeah. dying however yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know right. like, to me it's like I'm like, it's like well I'm not really afraid. I'm not, I don't consciously fear death I'm not I'm not aware of it but definitely no. the process of losing I've done some meditation retreats lately where I've popped into that or dropped into that space of like not being able to breathe that was traumatic. That's something I hope not to relive, touch wood. And um, yeah. and so I think 
for that reason, we have to acknowledge, we have to turn to and allow that fear to be felt. And and I know the danger in turning away too quickly from so-called negative emotions. Like I've really lately, really learning about the, the value and acknowledging and allowing a feeling to flow through and then turning and focusing on nothing but the the positive and the mental focus of where you want to go and where you want to be but just not to do it too quickly <laughs> i think i think one thread through this whole conversation for me has been mindset mm, absolutely your your mindset has been seems to me to be absolutely crucial in your journey yeah it, it, and i think i can't take credit for that i don't want to say yeah i'm really proud of my mindset. it's like i think we're just somehow born into or as a personality traits to have a particular mindset and i'm told by by friends that i went within school and high school that i always was positive a, yeah. a buddy called me smiley when one guy was older older student jim um you know and that name kind of stuck for a few people because i tend to have a pretty positive attitude but i think i when i and i've never had to deal with depression and, and i know a lot of people have and it's like it's it's i feel bad for people to deal um because it's so much right now anxiety and depression in society and it's like people blame themselves for it because the flip side of the mindset sort of ideal of well let's just change our mindset is that is that when it's challenging for us we could tend to blame ourselves and so right. it's so yeah. hard i think we have to we have to have that intention of allowing for our mindset and we can we can do motivational reading like you do each morning like you're saying you, you try yeah, to read for sure and i think that helps us so long as we don't i don't like flog ourselves with oh i should have a better mindset like we got to really watch those shoulds and shouldn'ts and maybe just use that language like invite ourselves to look at the possibility of well what's what's another way of looking at this and i do think we can transform what has been maybe a habitually poor mindset and just like we can transform our physical conditioning by going to the gym it is possible but just we got to be a little bit easier on ourselves when it's uh, not happening i think that's a, yeah. a great place to kind of leave off and and there's one thing that I had shared in a conversation with you earlier that uh, I feel like if you were able to bottle and sell your resilience, mm. then you'd be just a gazillionaire because <laughs> the, the quality that yeah. has gotten you through the ordeals that you've had to deal with and the, the spirit that you conduct yourself with today, I mean, there's just so much resilience in that and it's it's so inspiring for us to hear and I I think I can speak for both of us that we could have had like a four-hour conversation <laughs> easily yeah. and we'd love to continue it at some point. Absolutely. And yeah, and no, I feel really privileged to be able to to share parts of my story and to um, to still be here to, to be doing that and uh, really excited that you guys are having this. I've listened to say, I've listened to a couple of your episodes that you have this this format to share these inspiring stories. So the fact that I'm even here is, is great and I really thank you guys for having me on. Oh, we're honored to have you yeah. here. Yeah. Thank you thank so you. much. So go check out Rumble. Uh, you, you, you've got three flavors now. Do you want to just give a shout out to the, the awesome product that you brought in for us today that has been keeping us going? I'm for drinking it right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure. No, if you want to know more, we have lots on the website at drinkrumble.com. Um, there's this little story video that we really enjoyed filming up in, in Tofino. So, um, yeah, there, that's, there's a story there. It, it tells you all about the product. But um, I, I just want to encourage people 
the rebel is great and, and that's not you know anything to d dismiss but really the the focus for me these days is on transplant and encouraging people if they haven't been already uh on, in canada and ontario you can go to uh, be a donor.ca in, in bc it's transplant.bc.ca takes a couple minutes to register and probably even more importantly tell your family that you want to be an organ donor that's a critical component some people forget about and it can make uh, a world of difference to to a lucky recipient Organ donation, everybody. Cool. It keeps amazing people like <laughs> Mr. Paul Underhill around. So go do it. Awesome. Thank Thanks you. for listening. Well, that's the episode. Thanks so much for tuning in, everyone. We appreciate your time and attention. If we can make one request, please subscribe. How do you do that, John? They push subscribe. That's all you got to do. We also got social media, guys. We got Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. Please like us and follow us there. We also got a really fancy website. ObstacleCoursePodcast.com. That is the one. It's where you'll find our show notes and lots of other goodies. And if you have somebody who'd be great for the podcast, please let us know. Send us a message on any of those networks and we'll bring them on. Mm -hmm, for sure. We're always looking for good people. Thanks for listening. Keep pushing through those obstacles. <laughs>